0: It is a truth universally acknowledged. Not all jobs are created equal. Some jobs are easy. Some are very hard. A spot welder does something extremely different than a middle manager, and yet their efforts are classified under the same heading, work. And that's what we'll be talking about in this wormhole episode. Except here, we'll be focusing on the history of labor because the history of labor is the history of people trying to make work suck just a little bit less for everyone. So on that note, let's talk
1: to Kim. I'm Kim Kelly. I'm an independent labor reporter and apparently now author based in South Philadelphia. I write for um, a lot of different places, basically whoever will have me.
0: Kim Kelly just published a book called Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. She describes it as a people's history of labor in the US. It's a semi-chronological look at how the American labor movement has evolved.
1: And of course, you can't cover everything, but I specifically wanted to write about the stories that tend to get left out of the history books, and especially the labor history books. So the whole book focuses predominantly on women and people of color, queer folks, disabled workers, incarcerated workers, sex workers. The way I picked the subjects and the people, it's really, I just kind of picked out the ones I thought sounded cool or that I'd seen really. I, I specifically wanted to find people that um were kind of footnotes in other books and other stories. Like, some woman's name kind of tossed as an aside in a paragraph somewhere. I was like, oh, well, like, it sounds like she did something cool, though. Like, what, what did she do? Which is sort of what we're up to on
0: Eclipsed. Stories you never knew, you never knew, right? Anyway. Kim came by to tell us about a pair of strikes in a unique profession. A profession depicted on this episode of The Simpsons. Room
1: really is scary. No, I'm his cousin, Grave I've been digging graves for thirty years, and I've never buried anyone alive.
0: From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipse. In this episode, we're going to get our hands a bit dirty. After the break, what happens when grave diggers go on strike? Our story starts in New York, just a few years after World War II ended.
1: So this first one happened at St. Patrick's Cathedral, in New York it was in the 40s, 1949. And it was, it was you know, the thing with you know, grave diggers or other workers that have like cool or creepy sounding jobs, like, yeah, they may have a unique vocation, but it's still a job. Like you still have a boss, you still got to get paid, you still hopefully get benefits. And the grave diggers went on strike because they needed more money. They they wanted a raise. They were working six days a week, 48 hours. And, you know, they got sick of it. Contract negotiations break down. They went on strike. And it just happened to get, it got really complicated. Because this is, you know, every job is important. And the job that they're doing is important on so many different levels, including a spiritual level and a practical level, like, what do you do with all the dead bodies if the gravediggers are on strike? Right. And so there was a lot, it was a very pressing concern among everyone to get that figured out. What uh, What were their days like? I mean, it seems pretty hard. This is in the 40s. They don't have the equipment that we have now, but I'm sure they had some mechanical help. But I mean, you're digging holes and hauling very heavy boxes full of people. And, <laughs> in, you know, you're outside all day. You're dealing with, you know I'm sure they they had to deal a little bit with grieving families and with you know all the overlap that comes into burying somebody with different religious traditions. I'm sure it was not exactly a walk in the park. Like it's hard now, too, right? It's mm-hmm. It's a very weighty sort of job, even outside of the physical labor, like the emotional labor and just some of the things that can happen if there is an accident, if something breaks, if something pops out of somewhere, like I feel like it could be a potentially traumatic sort of work day if things went wrong.
0: In the late 40s, when the strike was taking place, the labor movement had recently taken some losses. 1947 saw the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, which limited the power of labor unions. Anti-communism was also ascendant, and labor unions had begun to fracture over the left-wing elements in their coalitions. Did they have a union or were they were they collectively bargaining?
1: Actually, they do. They did have a union. One of the interesting things: they were part of uh, the Food, Tobacco, Agriculture, and Allied Workers, which was affiliated with the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And why all those letters matter is the CIO at that time was a much more left-leaning organization. Like they didn't want to purge the communists, like the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, did. They had a they were a much more red union, and these grave diggers weren't. Uh, weren't actually that red. They weren't that radical. It was a bunch of like Catholic, predominantly Italian and Irish workers who weren't really interested in all that communist shit. They just wanted to you know, put food on the table. And those political aspects kind of caused them problems because during the strike, they were getting red-baited.
0: And Cardinal Francis Spellman, who was the leader of that particular archdiocese, was extremely anti-communist.
1: During the strike... Uh, in an effort to appease the archdiocese, they disaffiliated with their parent union and joined a different one uh, that was affiliated with the AFL, which is a little more conservative. And it's was, it was just interesting to see how many outside factors can impact what would theoretically be a fairly straightforward dispute over like, hey, can we, give, can we have some more money? Like all of this, these religious things and political things all kind of coalesced. Right. Like Dorothy right. Day got involved. Like it was a whole thing. What did she do? She she helped found the Catholic worker movement. She was an anarchist and a religious person and an activist and was friends with all the coolest labor people of the day. She did a lot of writing. And she wrote about the strike. She wrote letters personally to the cardinals involved trying to get them to kind of budge on Christian grounds. You know, because at the time the cardinals involved, they brought in a bunch of scabs. They brought in these young seminarians who were working with them to bury the bodies. And I mean... Yeah, it's it's a little bit funny to think about a bunch a bunch of young dudes who spend all of the, all their time studying religious texts suddenly being handed a shovel and being like, all right, get on out there.
0: And that broke the strike, after seven long weeks. Afterward, one hundred seventy five of the Catholic cemetery workers who joined the picket line held a meeting in Queens. They began the meeting with a workers' prayer. Lord Jesus, Carpenter of Nazareth, you are a worker as I am. And then they made an oath of anti-communism and declared themselves no longer affiliated with the CIO, which was the more left-wing union. Ultimately, the workers reorganized under the AFL, the more right-leaning union, and agreed to a deal with the church.
1: Um, Ultimately, you know, they, they won, kind of. Well, they got some, they got a couple small concessions, but not as much as they wanted. But, you know. They did it. That's kind of how strikes go. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes you get a 8.3% raise instead of the 20% you needed.
0: Right. Yeah. Sometimes the victories are smaller than they should be. <laughs> and in like in the history, like in in U.S. labor history, was this like a, an anomalous thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, labor's power declined pretty heavily after the 30s. I mean, in 1949, when this strike happened, we were buttoned up against what was gonna be you know, the McCarthy, Red Scare, Cold War era, we weren't there yet, but it still wasn't a great time to be red or to be thought to be red. And for a really long time, people, and even now, I suppose people involved in unions have been sort of smeared or uh, stereotyped as being like radical, progressive, communist, whatever the, you know, the red bait of the day happens to be whatever flavor that is. But it was, I mean, there was still a lot of stuff going on in the 40s. Like this was right after the war. Well, I guess 1949, a few years after the war. And the fact that the cemetery workers went on strike, I don't think it would have surprised anybody. It didn't turn into a big strike wave. It didn't turn into a giant to-do. I'm sure only the local newspapers reported on it. But that's the thing with the history of labor in this country. Like there's always something going on. Even during the worst most moribund years of organized labor, someone somewhere was getting fed up and doing something about it and trying to improve their lot. And if you look hard enough, you can find them. If you spend enough time on newspapers.com or rustling around in archives or just reading the footnotes to books, like there's always something. Like it was the grape diggers at that point, but there's probably somebody else across the city who is causing trouble too.
0: It seems like what you're saying is a lot of these labor actions are very local, which is, like, they're they're about improving people's lives, but, like, the people, the very directly people directly involved with something, right? Like, it's not like no one's trying to provoke a larger movement, even if it is of a piece with a larger movement.
1: Yeah, because you're, you're already part of the movement, right? And mm-hmm. the labor movement hasn't always been... <laughs> the movement part hasn't always been as, as much of a priority for the people in charge or for the people involved. Right. So, uh, it really, what it comes down to when you join a union, sure, you might be coming with like family or personal or political reasons, but ultimately, you're trying to make your job better and help out your coworkers. Like, you want to get a raise, you want to be protected on the job, you want to keep, you know, do what you can to keep your asshole boss from grinding you down. It's a very practical move. And everything else that happens around it and kind of in concert with it, that's that's important too. But really, all the labor action and labor conflicts really come down to is people trying to make their lives a little bit better. And then all the rest is kind of complications.
0: After the break, we'll be heading across the pond and about 30 years into the future. A group of cemetery workers strike in Margaret Thatcher's UK, and changed the country's labor politics forever.
1: If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In
0: October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lea Alec-Murray.
1: And I'm Leah President.
0: And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to pretend that I don't, right? Hold
1: it in. Hold- and our current faves. And- Luffy must have his due.
0: <laughs> and we agree on some things, but not on everything. I- Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. No, I- Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. Every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Welcome back. In the UK, the last months of 1978 and the first ones of 1979 were known as the Winter of Discontent, a time when waves of strikes buffeted the country. The Labour Party lost their grip on the Prime Minister seat, which then went to the Conservative Margaret Thatcher, who was bent on reshaping the UK's politics?
1: Oh man, that was. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher was in power when the country was absolutely roiled by labor actions, by massive strikes and work stoppages, because Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative government was basically trying to grind the working class down beneath their fancy boot heels. And the labor movement in that country was like, not. Not into that. I mean, I'm sure we've all heard of the massive miner strikes that took over the collieries. I don't in the think
0: country. that. I, I don't. Th- it, we can detour here because I don't think that's true. I don't know if any. I don't know. If- oh, wait.
1: see, this is what, where my nerd comes out. i'm Like, well, of course you know about the miners and <laughs> Wales and Scotland, obviously.
0: Take us through a brief detour. What happened with the miners?
1: <laughs> in, in the broadest possible strokes, during you know the late 70s and 80s, there were giant strikes in the coal mines in that country because britain was a huge coal producer and a ton of small towns and communities were built up around these mines and around the pits it was similar to what we have here in appalachia and the deep south and the west like coal communities like there it was a huge part of the culture especially in uh, the northern part of the country which is traditionally kind of under-resourced more working class the power in the country was concentrated in the south around london and everyone else kind of defend for themselves. But essentially the miners went on these these long, bitter, bitter strikes. The conservative government and Margaret Thatcher tried to crush them. Uh, they tried to close tons of pits. They tried to put thousands of people out of work. It was a real, I mean, the big miner's strike was in 1984. So we're a few years away from that. But okay. I mean, this all of the, that was kind of, it's all been building. It's all been building, right? But basically what happened with these cemetery workers in Liverpool They they didn't organize the strike themselves. There was already uh, a public sector strike that was already happening throughout the country. And in Liverpool, the sanitation workers, who were always the first ones to hop in, which it kind of happens here too, but in this instance, the sanitation workers asked the cemetery workers if they would take the lead because they were sick of being the first ones. And the cemetery workers were like, yeah okay I mean their wages were low the work was really difficult and dangerous and you know they've had enough they wanted to get out on the action and unfortunately it, w- it was a short strike too It was only about 10 days but mm-hmm. this kind of comes back to the nature of the work that cemetery workers and grave diggers do like there's a time limit because people's I mean human biology dictates like things are gonna get ugly if you have a body that doesn't get doesn't get buried fairly expeditiously so people don't like when cemetery workers go on strike because it disrupts their mourning it disrupts you know their whole family's process around what's happening and also like you don't want grandma to start smelling bad so especially if you have religious traditions that dictate you need quick burial like it's complicated Mm -hmm. so when gravediggers go on strike they're, they're doing that with the understanding and I guess with the hope that the community will support them. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And in this instance in Liverpool, the community was not thrilled with all of this. And conservative politicians kind of used the fact that they were going on strike and they had this specific job as a weapon against them and against the labor movement in general. They got a ton of really bad press and nasty headlines the headlines were things like, now they won't let us bury our dead. Like the newspapers ran photos of unburied bodies. Like It was a really gnarly anti-union, anti-strike PR campaign. And they, they called it quits after a week and a half because it was like, this isn't what we signed up for. We were just trying to get a raise. And actually, one of the things that was interesting when I was researching that whole episode was how kind of bitterly that people who had participated in labor folks around that time looked back on it because it was... I think if it was any other type of worker, it wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened.
0: In other words, they became scapegoats for the crisis. And in a sense, these gravediggers were kind of the perfect fall guys. It's hard to ignore when bodies are getting buried. It moves the discussion into the realm of the philosophical, which is how a demand for more money and better treatment became a symbol of social decay.
1: Like, I'm sure the conservative headlines would have been, you know, pretty nasty, but not... You know, running pay- like it's pretty, pretty beyond the pale to, to to run photos of dead bodies in your newspaper yeah. just to break a strike.
0: That's I mean, high risk, high reward is what I'm is what I'm hearing here. But that's 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 wild. It does seem like this is one of the things that recurs in the history of labor, right? Is like this like vitriol toward people who want to change the way things are even a little bit Yeah,
1: like how dare you I mean every look what happens every time sanitation workers go on strike in a city or transportation workers like when you know MTA workers in New York or SEPTA workers in Philly like things, people a lot of people I think will happily support the idea of collective action or of workers rights until it inconveniences them and then the tides change. And that's the problem with this individualistic versus collective viewpoint, right? Like, if you think, oh, we're all in this together, maybe I'll have a little grace and sympathy for these folks versus the fuck you, I got mine. These guys are destroying my day or ruining my commute or not letting me bury my grandma. It's two very different ways to see the world.
0: Obviously, people still dig graves today. And some of them still aren't getting paid the way they should be. In New York City, inmates do some of that work.
1: Incarcerated folks on Rikers have, for years, been used to dig graves for people on Hart Island, the the pauper cemetery, the the island of lost souls. And one of my best friends was incarcerated in Rikers last year, and he knew some guys who had been involved in that, and they told him stories, and they'd... You know, told them about their decisions, like, why would you sign out to be a gravedigger? It's like, well, you get to see the sun.
0: Special thanks to Kim Kelly for sharing her work on the history of work. You can check out her book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, and you can follow her on Twitter at Grim Kim. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Tanita Rahmani, Lane Gerbig, and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Canyon-Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Shear, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriotis. Special thanks to Kim Kelly. Her book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, is out now. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at EclipsedPod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Cakes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.